0: Listen to The Astonishing Junk Drawer exclusively at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends.
1: They're not always up to good, especially in the, <laughs> the dead of night. Sometimes it will be a kangaroo, wild pigs, or even a lost cow. He, he feels and kind of hears
0: things in the brush chasing him out. Speaking of supernatural, do you want to talk about the watermelon? Your grandma was a witch. People might be interested.
1: You know what's going on there, right? witchcraft I mean, when you see their cuteness on, on social media, they're like, well, how could these be... Such terrible uh, creatures. Clan Eastwood did all his own stunts. That's weird. I don't know why that popped back up. Uh, because I did that.
0: Oh, okay, good.
1: Astonishing legends would like to thank Quip, HelloFresh, Squarespace, Simply Safe, Wondrium, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners,
0: for making tonight's show possible.
1: In late 2011 an author named David Politis released a book called Missing 411, Western United States and Canada. In its pages were cases of hundreds of people from all walks of life who had seemingly just vanished while visiting national parks in Western North America. Politis, a former police investigator himself, was motivated to look into these cases by a Park Service ranger that approached him with concerns that not only was this happening, but that there may be some kind of cover-up related to concealing the data on it. He even posited that it almost seemed like a policy that significantly reduced search times in these cases. To what end? Could it be to reduce the impact of them on the national stage? Or perhaps to avoid the truth behind the disappearances? Paulides took it upon himself to dig deeply into the cases, hitting frequent roadblocks due to a lack of information, but continuing on until he could compile at least some kind of list of people who disappeared over the decades. He immediately noticed a reluctance by the National Park Service in the United States to share information. He was even told that they didn't really keep track of missing people within the parks. He was actually advised in 2010 by the National Park Service's Freedom of Information officer, Karis Wilson, that concerning Crater Lake National Park in Oregon, the park does not maintain any list of missing persons. Instead, they rely on the institutional memory of employees who have worked at the park for years. This begs the question, is this just ineffective management of these cases? Or could there be a broader reason for not sharing it with the people of the United States? Is that reason as simple as the bad press that would affect visitorship? Or is it something more? Since this first book, at least 10 more books have been written by Mr. Politis, and several films have been produced. With time, he has worked to focus on specific parts of the country or specific scenarios that seem to have common ground in these bizarre cases. His work has not been without its criticism. Many people have strong feelings about whether or not something is really going on or whether this is just a misinterpretation of a vast trove of difficult to acquire data. We're not sure yet where we'll wind up as we begin this two-part series, but we hope to understand it all better when we're done. And we hope you will too. Even at the outset, however, some extraordinary events are clearly unfolding in North America's wilds. Whether or not you see patterns in them as a whole, there is no question that some of these cases will keep you up at night. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. I believe something took Ida May and comforted her through the night. The real question is, what grabbed her? Join us tonight for part one of this
0: special series as we venture into the North American wilderness and try to figure out why some people don't make it back. ¶¶
1: And we're back. Oh, all right. Who's that? I give up. I'm just a half speed Robert Stack. I didn't want to go half full stack? stack. Yeah, it was a half have, stack. You not want to go if, full stack. We which stack. are delicious. If you get the half stack of pancakes, it's just the yeah, right amount. Yeah. You're, not, you're not taking a nap after it. 2 right. tooty,
0: fresh and stacky. All right. Uh, we are back, folks. Thank goodness, because tonight we're going to be talking about a lot of people that don't make it back. Uh, mm. I really love camping. I have all the gear and everything. Yeah, but me too. I agree mm. with George Knapp that these books will change your level of awareness when you're in the woods.
1: I would certainly hope so, sir. Well, speaking of returning to a riveting and entertaining level of awareness and good humor, I wanted to let everyone know that I was delighted and honored to once again speak with our good friend Sir James Shakeshaft and make a guest appearance on the podcast Lore Men. I was actually asked by James to weigh in on some regional pronunciations of his and Alice Dare's latest offering Season 4, Episode 12, The Ghosts of Spokane. Mm. Finally, I'm the one who gets to criticize someone else's mispronunciation of place names. (laughs) But seriously, tune in for that episode and more, as it's guaranteed to be filled with laughs and spookiness. So check out Loremen anywhere you get your podcasts, or go to loremenpodcast.com. And speaking of a traditional spookiness, the spooky season is fast approaching and Halloween is upon us. And as we like to do, we'll be running three shows in a row this October, and we'd like to hand you the microphone. We are looking for the scariest, spooky stories you can muster, and we're asking you to write them out and send them to us via email at astonishingcontact@gmail.com. at gmail.com.
0: Yes, and we know some of you sent some in for our last listener shows. Mm -hmm. We're actually going to be going back and looking at those, too. So don't worry if you did
1: that already and they didn't get picked yet. Don't give up hope. Keep the spoop alive. There are some requirements, though, here, folks. We're looking for stories that fit in the vein of our show. So that would be ghosts, uh, hauntings, cryptids, UFOs. All that is in play. Scary being the theme. The story should have a little meat to it meaning we're looking for more than just brief encounters.
0: Yes, and finally, you must be willing to be interviewed by us to talk a little bit about your story
1: or possibly even tell it yourself on the air. Yes, indeed. And of course, we need these as soon as possible, folks. (laughs) That's the way we roll. Uh, Anyway, get them written out and email them to us at astonishingcontact at gmail.com and put Halloween in the subject line so it will be easy for us to pick out of the inbox.
0: Yes, again, that's contact. At gmail.com, Halloween in the subject line, send those scary stories in. And remember, we're looking for firsthand accounts if you got them. We'll have all this. We'll have all of this in the show notes too. Sorry. We'll have all these instructions in the show notes too. We'll even take a secondhand account if it's really good. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. We will actually. As long as you know the firsthand person. All right, so let's talk about the missing 411. Well, I feel like we've been saying this with every episode we've done the past Mm. four or five months, but this is another (laughs) one people have
1: been asking for for a long time. We're clearing out the backlog here of oft-requested topics, but we've been wanting to cover it ourselves for quite some time. And I think part of it is we didn't know how. We wanted to have a, a unique angle on it. And I'm not sure we have achieved that, but we do have some thoughts, let's say. That brings us to what
0: tonight is about. It's about the missing 411 series, which I'm going to bet a overwhelming majority of our audience is familiar with. Yeah, This is a series of books now, a big series of books now, which we'll talk about, written by the author and former policeman, David Paulides. And it's a little bit controversial, and we will be talking about yeah. that, but it's controversial because of the ideas that are suggested in it and the approach that it takes. But there is a lot of authentic, unusual, strange, mysterious stuff going on here. And I don't want to put the cart before the horse, so we'll leave it at that for now. But I was excited to get these books, which are – it's funny. They're very hard to get now. They're out of print on Amazon. They're overpriced, being sold by private dealers which I'm surprised that they're out of print because I feel like they're still pretty
1: hot topics. But as we've seen with the vertical plane, there are factors involved. It's like you can run out of print and then there's speculators and now a copy is $550. Yeah, As the case here, it's not quite that expensive, but you can tell they're very popular. People want these books because this is a topic that intrigues and disturbs a lot of people as well it should. There is something going on, of course, with the very basic facts of that and that people do go missing, but... What's the cause? That's what we're going to look at here. And I think the problem is that because this is a big topic, it's a lot because there's over, I think, 10 books where there's at least 10 books now and probably going to be more because he's covering all the regions and there's documentaries, there's at least two or three and... There was a movie that's being developed after the popularity of the first he's book. He's doing
0: very well with, as as our agents say, yes, we have agents. They say you're doing very well with the IP. That's intellectual property. <laughs> but he, seriously, he's franchised right. it out. He's got all these books. He's got movies. I, I've watched Missing Four One One, The Hunted, about the right. just about hunters. Right, and it, I enjoyed it. And this book that we're talking about tonight, which is The Missing Four One One, the Western United States and Canada. Was right. a, a good read. I, I actually had no problem getting through it in just a couple of days, even with my taking notes and writing all through the book
1: right. to making my copy completely worthless to anybody else. <laughs> well, on that <laughs> note, I want to discuss something with you quickly off the bat before we get into this. Yeah. Because people say like, well, that person's making a million dollars off this. Yeah. So- I don't know how much he's made. It's none of my business, really. But I would say I don't think he's a multimillionaire. I know a little bit about this because I know some writers and I can tell you that you don't make much money. You sent me an interesting article. I knew this before. We talked about this before on the show because I had had a bit of a chat with a, a great journalistic novelist, uh, William T. Volman, early on. And he was very kind to to share his insight because I was interested in in being a novelist or a writer of long form kind of stuff. Maybe screenplays this and that didn't really happen. But he told me the lowdown. He's like, you don't make a lot of money. He said, I got got $30,000 for my last book. And these are award-winning acclaimed books that he writes, right? Right. I mean, this is, of course, late 90s. But he said, I got $30,000. And that was my pay for a year and a half. So you figure it out.
0: Yeah, it's like a friend of mine says, you'd be surprised how much money I'm not making. Mm -hmm. However, when you get something made into a film like he's done with uh, some of these movies, which I think have been on Netflix or wherever else, that's a nice little chunk of change in some cases. But the way that works, too, is like the first deal, not so great. Because you're the right. studios will say, "Well, we're taking a risk on you. You're lucky we're making this." And that deal right. stinks. Then, if that thing does <laughs> really, really well, you yeah. can make a better deal the next time. But it's incremental, yeah. and you have to go a long way before you're really doing well, like Stephen King or or uh, Clive Cussler or some of, of these guys who are and gals too who are amazing yeah. at churning out bestsellers over and over and over again. This is a lot of work for a respectable income, but it's not necessarily capitalizing on, you know, I don't think Mr. Palides is, you know, living on Lake Como at this point. So <laughs> that's just in defense of him and other yeah. people
1: who write books of this nature. I want to mention that off the bat, because of course, that's the first thing in people's minds. And like I said, it's often commented on by people who don't know anything about it. It's just an easy thing to say. Yeah. When you talk about the movie, since the book did okay, of course, eventually they were working on a movie and there was a Kickstarter project with it. And there's a website that goes with the movie. So the title of the website is Missing411, The Movie Website. And under the section, How It All Began, The Books, and there's a colon there. And that's what I want to know, how this all start. And Scott, you're going to inform yeah. us, but I'll start us off by reading some notes of what the About page is. So as I said previously, a series of currently 10 books and probably counting and several documentaries starting with The Missing 411, the movie, and continuing with other titles with a specific focus like geography or activities, traits, or profiles of the missing people continue to be produced as well as Politis' popular YouTube channel highlighting various cases and purported connections. So that's still going on. If you want to see some of these cases and not have to pay, they're free on YouTube. He does a continuing series on his channel where you can get the flavor of what's happening. And I got to say, the more current ones, they're pretty disturbing, Yeah, the facts that are presented. But what's really there? So from their point of view, again, The other thing I want to say at the onset is that because there's such a voluminous amount of material here, and that's also one of the stumping things is that we didn't know how to go about it. Like, are we going to read 10 books? Should we get Mr. Politis on for an interview? And we'd heard that it's hard to get a hold of him for whatever reason. It's like, we can't really hold out. And then we thought, well, how are we going to go about this? So I thought, well, let's start at square one. Let's just tackle the first book. And then as this progresses, as we get more information, probably more stories perhaps, maybe we will one day be granted an interview with Mr. Politis, we'll have more on it. But for right now, what we can handle is the first book. Yeah. Well, what they explain about that is, is how this all started. And it's briefly described in several pages of the, of the website for the project, like the documentary. And then also it's explained on the Can-Am Missing .com website That is the ongoing other project, the Canadian American Missing yes. Project. So it's, it's shortened as CANAM, C-A-N-A-M, Missing, all one word, .com website. So uh, how it all began? Well, a national park ranger told writer David Politis a troubling story. Over his years of involvement with numerous search and rescue operations at several different national parks, he had detected a trend that he couldn't understand. The ranger explained that during the first seven to ten days of a disappearance, he would witness massive search and rescue activity and significant press coverage. Following this initial week-long effort, there was almost always an immediate halt to the coverage, a discontinued search for the victims, and no explanation from search authorities. Now, from the webpage, What is Our Purpose? on the same site, the project began after a meeting with a park ranger and slowly evolved into a study on missing people who have vanished in the wild. Many under highly unusual circumstances. We found in many of the cases, parents and relatives of the victims believe their loved one was kidnapped. The statement that in many cases, parents and relatives of the victims believe their loved ones were kidnapped, that comes up a lot. Yes. That's me saying that. Yeah. That is one of the tenets is that A lot of the cases, that's what their gut feeling is. You can take or leave that. I happen to think uh, in a lot of cases, you'll see this time and time again, when uh, especially a mother or a father believes something happened, that is a parental link gut feeling. And you'll find oftentimes it's all or partially right. So we don't know yet, but it goes on to say... Law enforcement and the media typically do not publicize concerns of kidnapping or abduction when the missing can be explained through traditional means. There are too many similar cases to ignore the trend. The consistencies must be accounted for. Missing 411 will begin a societal dialogue about these unexplained disappearances. We aim to be a voice for the victims and their families. Missing 411, the movie, will add visual clarity to these cases. So that is the end of their uh, About page. Now, a little bit about David Politas himself. David Politas received his undergraduate and graduate degrees from the University of San Francisco and has a professional background that includes 20 years in law enforcement and senior executive positions in the technology sector. On March 1st, 2012, David released Missing 411 Western U.S., the story of people who have disappeared in the wilds of North America. Again, here we go. Many of the parents and relatives of the missing make claims that the victim is kidnapped, abducted in very remote areas. This is well documented. This three-plus year, 9,000-hour investigation into unexplained disappearances in isolated locations is a book that anyone who walks in the woods should read. The real question that book elicits is, what is happening to these people? And by now, this is me talking, uh, it's over 9,000 hours and certainly more years than that. Yeah, absolutely. In late March 2012, David's second book, The Missing 411 Series, was released, Missing 411, Eastern U.S.
0: The thing is, you know, I have Missing 411 uh, Western right here, and mine says it was copyright 2011. I Mm -hmm. don't know. And I kind of, I thought, and I don't know this for sure, I should have looked it up before we recorded, but I feel like initially at least I would have sworn there was one big fat book that had the whole country in it. And then it, it may have, somehow think, it became two right. books that maybe got released in separate editions or something. But I could be wrong about that. But the copy I have here for the Western US and Canada, mine
1: says copyright 2011. So I don't know. I think what happened uh, is it's explained later or I'd read this before and I might even read this a little bit later is that uh, he had so much material. And I think yeah. because these are independently published, you can say self-published, there's so much here let's split this into two books because it's like with our show people say yeah. like yeah i want to check out astonishing legends How long are your episodes? Three and a half, four hours. What? (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. Ain't nobody got time for that. (laughs) So uh, he had so much material, he split it into two books. And of course, it was a good dividing line, uh, you know, the Continental Divide, Eastern and Western United States. And then uh, we'll get to these titles in a bit here. But in late March 2012, David's second book in the Missing 411 series was released, Missing 411 Eastern U.S., the Eastern version is a continuation of stories that occurred in the eastern half of the United States with special sections on unusual outdoor activities which seem to be related to disappearances and a master list of all people who have vanished. In June 2012, Mr. Politis was an invited speaker at the 2012 National Association of Search and Rescue, N-A-S-A-R, N-A-S-S-A-R, annual conference in South Lake Tahoe. The presentation was on the findings of the Can-Am project that were detailed in Missing 411. The packed room at the Harvey's Convention Center heard Mr. Politis give a detailed overview of the 63 clusters of missing people and the associated elements found within the clusters. Since the release of the Missing 411 series, Mr. Politis has been a guest on countless radio shows, morning television, conferences, and primetime newscasts. The 411 series has been vetted by some of the best search and rescue professionals, investigative journalists, radio and television hosts, and print journalists from North America. In the winter of 2015, Mr. Politas put together a team of world class film professionals to document missing persons cases for the big screen. The project went to Kickstarter during the summer of 2015 and funds were raised to produce the project. After a year of filming, editing, and other production issues, in July of 2016, Missing 411, the film, was completed and submitted to its first film festival. More details will follow on film distribution. In 2019, David produced and starred in his second documentary, Missing 411, The Hunted, a film about a series of missing hunters. You can watch both productions here on Amazon. I've seen that one. I haven't actually seen the big one yet, or the first one yet, but I'm going to watch it before we do part two. Yes. On Rhodes from roads to the rock, and when I'm not helping rock your Saturday night, I'm listening to astonishing legend. Now, let's get back to the show.
0: By the way, it's we didn't do an official disclaimer here, but I did want to go ahead and present one. There is going to be, or there are going to be, I should say plural, some shocking details and information in tonight's show. So, yes, listener yes. discretion is advised. We will be discussing some untimely deaths that come in very unpleasant ways. And uh, it's going to be a little bit forensic in nature. And it's the kind of stuff that if you're listening to true crime shows all the time, which I think everyone in the world apparently is, according to the podcast charts, you've heard all this
1: stuff. But we're going to get into uh, some of those uh, details this evening as respectfully as we can. Yes, indeed. Well, here are some titles. Uh, They all start off with Missing 411. And as I said earlier, they're uh, geographically specific. So the first one, of course, in 2011 is Western U.S., 2012 saw Eastern U.S., that volume. 2013, we had North America and beyond. And Again, it's Missing 411 and North America and beyond. 2014, there was Missing 411, The Devil's in the Detail. Missing 411, A Sobering Coincidence, 2015. and 2016, we had the Hunter's version. In 2017, we have Off the Grid. In 2018, there was... Law, L A W, which stands for land, air, water disappearances. 2019, we had a focus on Canada. And in 2020, the last book, I believe so far, is on Montana. And I believe what's coming out next is
0: Idaho. He's onto something here. It's like the weird New Jersey series, those guys going national. Like yeah. it's kind of alarming that there's enough stories to do this many specific books, but. That's the kind of thing that a lot of people want to read and read up on. And of course, you know, the, it's the first thing you think is like, is my state on? Because I was going camping this weekend, <laughs> you know, uh, what's it well, say that, about no, North I Carolina? Mean, you, we, yeah. we
1: joke about this, but that's one of the reasons people are so interested and also, another, it's a twofold thing. If uh, you ask Politis, he would say like, well, yeah, it's not like nobody goes out in the woods, right? We should be careful. If something's happening in this area, you might want to be more vigilant when you're in this area where a bunch of stuff's happened in one yeah. space. If there is such a thing as these clusters happening, you should yeah. be vigilant in the woods anyway you should be vigilant in the city yeah people
0: take things for granted you should be vigilant about a lot of things as a you know again as a car person i think a lot of people take driving for granted and i i judge that by how many people i see driving holding a cell phone up and they're still doing into it while they're going 70 miles an hour you are in a giant machine you weigh many tons more than it weighs sitting still just remember that. It doesn't take anything to kill somebody else accidentally.
1: But accidents happen and yeah. same thing everywhere. But you got to yeah. wonder, it's like, is it more uh, prevalent in certain areas? Now, that's what the series of books are. And what I would say is at least with these books, if you can say nothing good about them and you don't have a, a great opinion of them, at least these are real cases and he's bringing them to light. So as people always say like, well, somebody needs to know these stories. Well, yeah, here you have Mr. Politas bringing these stories to light. Yeah. When it's long past the local news and the media wanting to share this and they're out of answers and that's it, they just want to forget it, but the families can't. Here, at least you have a documentation of these things. Okay. Right. So just paraphrasing a little bit from another description, this one written by our friend, and I'm glad we can call him that now, George Knapp, host of Coast to Coast AM sometimes. And I believe this is all written by him, but just paraphrasing here, uh, he describes the book thusly is Missing 411 is the first comprehensive book about people who have disappeared in the wilds of North America. It's understood that people routinely get lost, some want to disappear, but this story is about the unusual. Nobody has ever studied the archives for similarities, traits, geographical clusters of missing people until now. A tip from a National Park Ranger led to this three-year, more than 7,000-hour, of course that's increased by now, investigative effort into understanding the stories behind the people who vanished. The book chronicles children, adults, the elderly who have disappeared, sometimes in the presence of friends and relatives. As search and rescue personnel exhaust leads and places to search, relatives start to believe kidnappings and abductions have occurred. The belief by relatives is not an isolated occurrence. It replicates itself time after time, case after case across America. The research depicts 28 clusters of missing people across the continent, something that has never been exposed and was a shocking find to researchers. Topography does play a part into the age of the victims, and certain clusters have specific age and sex consistency that is baffling. This is not a phenomenon that has been occurring in just the last few decades, Clusters of missing people have been identified as far back as the 1800s. The manuscript for the research was extremely large, so the story was split between two books, Missing 411 Western U.S. and Canada, and Missing 411 Eastern U.S. Going down a little bit, some of the issues that are discussed in each edition, the National Park Service's attitude towards missing people, how specific factors in certain cases replicate themselves in different clusters, Exposing cases involving missing children that aren't on any national database. Unusual behavior by bloodhounds, canines involved in the search process. How storms, berries, swamps, briar patches, boulder fields, and victim disabilities play a role in the disappearance. The strategies of search and rescue personnel need to change under specific circumstances. Major news organizations do a deplorable job of covering stories and issues which are deemed too unusual or too far outside the box. Chances are they will find a way to trivialize or ignore the disturbing evidence accumulated by David Politis, a former lawman turned investigative journalist. The paper trail uncovered by Politis through sheer doggedness is impressive, the evidence indisputable. People are vanishing without a trace from our national parks and forests, yet government agencies are saying nothing. At a minimum, this story deserves space on the front page of every newspaper in the country, and it warrants a formal high-level inquiry by the federal agencies whose files leave little doubt that something very strange is unfolding in our wilderness.
0: So there's a lot going on here. Obviously, George is writing a ringing endorsement of Mr. Politis' book, It's true. I mean, having read the book cover to cover, Mm -hmm. all of this stuff is in there. There are folks that are critical of some of uh, Mr. Politis's approach, which we'll talk a little bit about that as we go through this two-part series. But there's an underlying series of things in the book that are pretty disturbing, and Mm -hmm. I would say still unexplained. Now, what's at hand with these cases? Could it be that it's something we don't understand? And, you know, that's what we talk about on our show, paranormal stuff, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, Could it also be people, human beings being involved in weird things? Yeah, sure. I mean, he openly mentions, uh, at least in uh, the Western U.S. book, which is the one we're primarily focusing on tonight there's a lot of cases that seem like there's probably serial killers lurking in the park system. Uh, yeah, And the biggest complaint that he has, and this was back in 2011, I think these things have developed since then, but the biggest complaint he has is that the park system, at least on the surface, are saying that they're not tracking this information. Right. Not only are they not tracking it, they don't have records. If you ask them for the records, well, we don't keep that kind of information. We rely on the memory of legacy park rangers. And it's just yeah. like a kind of a lot of stuff that he, frankly, didn't believe. He's like, there's no way they're not tracking it. So the question is, why aren't they releasing it? Are they not releasing it because it's bad publicity? It reduces right. traffic to the parks? Is it because there's something strange going on and that would reduce the traffic even further? Not only are people missing, but it's really weird the way they're missing what is the reason that the park system isn't tracking? Of course, it could just be negligence too. You know that certainly happens in bureaucracy.
1: Right. I mean, the last news tidbit that I read on this, I think, concerning that. Of course, there are uh, and have been FOIA requests, Freedom of Information yeah. Act, numerous requests, FOIA requests. Uh, posted by him. The last thing I heard was, uh, and I think it was Mister. Polita's reporting on it. And he said, "Well, he's talked with you know about as high a level of National Park Service people as he can, and we're I think we're talking about uh, Washington D.C. folks." Was that they told him, like, okay, look, if you want to have us gather all this stuff or do it yourself or whatever, basically it's going to cost $1.4 million. So good luck with that if you can raise that. Yeah,
0: they were like, it's going to take 700, I can't remember exactly, but 750 mm-hmm. man hours and X, Y, and Z. And, and at that point, he specifically said something that we already talked about. He's like, this starving author is not going to be able to raise <laughs> those kind of funds, you know? Right. But he did yeah. know how to investigate because he's a former police officer. And I think, too, another thing that worked in his favor when he started looking into this was because he had been, as they say, I guess in New York anyway, Mm -hmm. if you're undercover or whatever, somebody come up to you and they think you're undercover, they say, are you
1: on the job? Oh, that's that's a, yeah, that's an old,
0: uh, where
1: they saw that last was uh, Roy Scheider in the seven ups. Great. Yeah. 70s car chase movie. And he's on the radio, but he's driving. She's a Pontiac, and, uh, but he has to let the course, uh, he's undercover. He has to tell them like, I'm on the job.
0: Yeah, I'm on the job. But with the point being though, I think that a lot of these law enforcement oriented park rangers, because they're not all law enforcement, but a lot of those guys and a lot of search and rescue guys opened up to him because they felt like he was from their field. And that right, probably right. worked in his favor when he started to investigate all this stuff, as opposed to a
1: journalist coming in or somebody who didn't have credentials that match their own. That's why I wanted to get at you with the little blurb in his book, because I want to know the nature of that talk as much as we could, you know, when, when you read it, it's like, okay, that makes sense. But before we started reading the book, it was, what was said in that talk with the ranger? What made him so suspicious? Like, whoa, I mean, I'm talking about the ranger trying to relay this to Politis. It's like, Hey, uh, there's something weird going on, man. And you got to check into this. When he says here that this ranger said that he had read his books and he was coming Mm -hmm. to talk to him, at that
0: point, his books were not the missing 411 about these folks. He had written a couple of books about Bigfoot. Now, don't press stop. I know a lot of people think, oh, they're (laughs) talking about Bigfoot again. I want to make something real clear here before we go any further. In uh, the entire first book here, the Western US and Canada book, the one that we're primarily focusing on tonight, I think the word Bigfoot appears in it maybe, you know, don't quote me on it, maybe three times. And it may may even be two times. And in, I think, both of those cases, I know one at least, it was because a witness said something about it. Not about seeing one, but they told a story about it. So he doesn't do that in this book. And I want to make that real clear. And that's one of the interesting things about The Missing 411. And I can't say this about the whole series, because again, as Forrest said, we haven't read all 10 books. But at least in the first two, there's not an implication about Bigfoot here, there's an, what there is is a bunch of weird stories that mm-hmm. and weird vanishings and weird deaths and weird dismemberments and and a lot of strange things happening, and he basically just says, "I wonder what that could be." He he never yeah. says this is Bigfoot. It's Bigfoot. It's Bigfoot. There's none of that going on in this book. <laughs> right, but. Right. And I'm only just now realizing this as we're leaning into the beginning of this episode. Mm -hmm. The two books that the ranger must have read would have been The Hoopa Project, Bigfoot Encounters in California, which came out in 2008. And then in 2009, Mr. Polites released a book called Tribal Bigfoot which I'd be very interested in, especially if that's relating to uh, uh, Native Americans and their experiences. So sure. I uh, haven't read those, have heard of, uh, I've heard of the Hoopa Project a million times, but still have not read that yet. But I just want to make that clear. But so the ranger may have come in saying, look, something's up here. But even in this introduction, I'm just going to read this one paragraph from the introduction here. I sat in my room at the lodge and listened to the ranger tell me about a series of missing people inside our national parks. The ranger stated that the events were very unusual, many people were never found, and the Park Service was doing everything possible to keep a lid on the publicity surrounding the missing. He explained that non-law enforcement employees weren't privy to all of the information, but that the upper echelon law enforcement supervisors inside the Park Service were concerned about the numbers and certain facts surrounding specific cases. I asked the ranger if this was exclusively at the park where they were employed, or if it occurred at other parks as well. The ranger stated that it appeared to be happening at other parks, but the totality of the issue wasn't completely understood by the personnel communicating the information. Mm-hmm. And then I read in another spot just during our research, and I, I didn't, I can't remember where this was, but I read in another yeah. spot, it was actually two rangers that he spoke to. So I'm not really sure I'm which sure. case it was.
1: Yeah, I've heard that as well, or multiple rangers that uh, confirmed one of the others' yeah. assessment of that, and that they didn't have any further information other than they thought something was unusual going on. And, and this is after being a park ranger for many, many years, you know, a right. lifetime career, that something other than uh, just people bumbling around in the woods and falling down a cliff, something else was going Which on. Which happens. And that, you know, all everything happens there, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and there's all manner of disappearance. There's all manner of cause. Some people purposely go into the woods to get right. lost. There's people who are on the run, Again, there's every variation, but that's what we're here to find out. And again, the reason to tackle this finally is that let's not get crazy because it was just overwhelming. It's like, to be fair, this is just the first book. It's not all the cases that have compiled since then. The trend of information that may have occurred may have gotten weirder. It may have gotten more unusual. It may have stayed just as mundane, depending on your your viewpoint. And it's just more cases. But obviously, more and more people always go disappearing in the woods. So you're going to have more cases to report on. But to be fair to Mr. Politis, it's like somebody, it's your first book, too. Well, I guess in this case, the third one, but the first one on The Missing Project. And it might be just as unfair to criticize somebody about uh, a paper they wrote in college as opposed to their their later career or in high school. It's like, yeah, it wasn't very good. It's like, dude, that was my first book. Right. He's gotten a lot further now. And like I said... If you take all the information from all the the huge volume of all these cases together, that's the data set you really should be looking at. However, to make this feasible, we're just looking at the first book and the initial starts of this trend. And is there anything to look at? Let's talk about this book.
0: There's some criticism and we're going to get to those. But first, the presentation of the information according to Polides. His first book, as we said, we think it probably was written as a single manuscript and then had to be split into Western and Eastern. That's what he says in his book anyway. It's like, Mm -hmm. I've got so much information here. We are focusing primarily on Western for tonight's episode, and that's the Western uh, United States as well as Western Canada, although some of the cases do uh, venture East, and he mentioned some of the Western cases in his Eastern book and vice versa. Again, I think because he probably wrote it all as one manuscript originally. But the bulk of the cases we'll talk about tonight take place in the West. But the terrain and the locations that things are happening, we're not focusing on as much as we are the circumstances for the purposes of tonight's episode. There are some common characteristics with the cases that he Mm -hmm. finds are correlations between these. He lists these uh, following ones, in fact. The vanishings take place in a rural setting. Dogs seem to play a major role. Bloodhounds and canines can't track the scent when they're brought in to find the victims or, or they won't track the scent. Storms seem to always come in soon after the disappearances. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The timing for most of the incidents seems to be the afternoon. Things are taking place in the afternoon and right. often in broad daylight, yes. most times in broad daylight, actually, uh, if, if there's witnesses around. There are a lot of time perimeters of a swamp or a briar patch of some kind. The victim, if they're found alive, is sometimes only semi-conscious or dazed or maybe mm-hmm. in a state of shock or, or seems to have a missing time. He doesn't use that phrase, but that's the having read the book, yeah. that's what I took away from people's uh, reactions. He also mentions, interestingly, that there's a lot of berry picking. There's somehow there's <laughs> berries are being picked. Yeah. That seems to be a common thread for some of them. And then this is the one that seems to be most consistent and I was most baffled by, and that's if right. folks had their clothing removed. A lot right. of times they would turn up naked all but for a sock or their clothing was gone. And in a lot of cases, it seemed like it was removed by the person themselves and not an animal.
1: Yes, and I will say this to head off at the pass before you go. send us an email on paradoxical undressing. These cases all didn't take place in cold weather. Some of them did. Some did, sure. Uh, But sometimes it's in the summer. It's in all conditions and in all kinds of terrain. And also some of these victims that were
0: undressed or seemed to have been undressed and then weren't found, but their clothes were found. It was right after they disappeared, like right after. Paradoxical undressing happens at the end stages of brutal, brutal hypothermia where you're just about to die because you've been suffering for a long time in very cold weather, and yeah. it's the only way you can make yourself warm. We'll talk about it a little more coming up here, but, yeah. but if you have a victim who's taken some clothes off six hours after they first disappeared, doesn't make sense. Paradoxical right, undressing right. doesn't make sense. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Same thing with terminal burrowing, which we're going to talk about later as well. That is found to have taken place over a prolonged dip in temperatures not right. like a sudden drop or just a few degrees, or that's the first resort that people go to, it is a long bout descending into hypothermia, and that's at the very last stages where you go feral in a way.
0: Right. Again, coming back to, I already covered this a little bit, but uh, the Missing 411 Western, it's about 400 pages. The word Bigfoot only comes up a few times. It's not doesn't seem to have a blatant Bigfoot agenda, so I want to make that clear, especially if anyone else is checking this book out. <laughs> and in fact, when you look at a lot of the cases if you are leaning into the idea that something unusual is going on, for me, based on all the experience that Forrest and I have across our research and all the shows and things that we've talked about over the years, and I was going to say, oh, well, here's the paranormal (laughs) explanation. We're going to go from the mundane to the fringe like we like to do. I don't necessarily put it in that camp, but I would still put it in a very unexplained and weird camp. And we're talking like, Puck wudgies, UFOs, and all that. We'll get into that a little <laughs> uh-huh. bit. But then we we also need to look at the mundane ideas. Sure. So it's important, too, to remember that Polides is categorizing these based on what he feels are common themes. So there's a little bit of a question of why is he categorizing these things this way? And we'll talk about that, too. Now, there's no shortage of cases where the folks who've gone missing are, according to the information he is sharing exceptionally skilled in the outdoors, as well as in some instances, skilled in self-defense, hunting, firearm tactics. There's other cases, however, which are kids, and many of those kids are developmentally or physically disabled sometimes. That's another interesting factor. One of the things that Paulides mentions in his books is his particular perspective that is created by his history in law enforcement. And so that's the 10,000 foot view that he can theoretically dispassionately have when he's looking over all these cases. That's the view that gives him, I guess, a framework for what to expect, what's true, what's not true. People that do that kind of investigation, they know a lot more about human nature Mm -hmm. than the rest of us. Right. Because all they deal with is people generally that are lying. You know, it's, it's, if you've ever seen an episode <laughs> of cops, it's like,
1: I don't know how that got in my pocket, uh, you
0: know? So. <laughs> right.
1: Those aren't my like, pants. This
0: is my brother's car.
1: Yeah. And we've, we've seen that before. And also some things that, you know, you have ended up in the movies. I've also heard law enforcement utter, because again, if you see the same behavior a thousand, 10,000 times, you can start yeah. to draw parallels that are often true. Like uh, the, the, somebody who's guilty and they get caught, they're a little more relaxed. Yeah, It's like, eh, I don't know. Hey, I've been busted before. It's not a big deal. Yeah, It's like with anything else in any other profession. People who've been doing it a long time develop a sense about it, but it's just a sense. It's not a solid thing, but you could say that most of the time you're right, but not always. Now, believe it or not, folks, we're coming up on being eight years old, the show, oh. not
0: us. Mm-hmm. But, oh, you know. Right. Literally, but the show's coming up on being eight years old. That's a long time to be looking at the stuff we've been looking at. Um, of course, it's only half as long as Jim Harold's been doing it, but we'll we'll still take whatever credit we can get. And I think that one of the interesting things about our own perspective is that when it comes time to look for a paranormal explanation, we've got a broad view of that because we've seen all different kinds of people in all different kinds of scenarios attributing all different kinds of paranormal ideas to things like this. So that's going to be what we're going to bring to the table. Well, coming back to cases of people who've gone missing with extensive outdoor experience, one of the very first ones that Polides mentions in his book is an excellent example. So we're going to start talking about uh, these individual cases, uh, ones that jumped out at us. Now, there were hundreds, literally hundreds in the book, I mm-hmm. don't know if it's technically 411 back when he did the the Western and Eastern, totally, maybe it was,
1: mm.
0: or he's uh, 411 is because it's the missing and it's the information. It's on the info. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs>
1: yeah. that's the
0: number you used to dial to get information, to get a phone number. For those of you who are oh, too yeah. young to remember when phones had cables coming out of them that went into the wall. Let's talk about this first guy his name's Bart Schleyer S C H L E Y E R he was 49 years old when he disappeared on September 14th of 2004 This guy was an expert expert bear tracker According to Politus, he was considered one of the most accomplished bear experts in the world at the time, and that was specifically relating to live trapping, by the way. Live trapping, mm-hmm. collaring, and releasing right. uh, for research studies. And we were able to corroborate that by looking at several other uh, online sources of information on BART. In fact, here is an article from OutdoorLife.com called The Last Wildman. This was published February 1st of 2006
1: by Mark Sullivan. Bart Schleyer was the kind of guy you rarely hear about anymore, a John Henry of a man, one who loved wild places, dangerous carnivores, hunting, science, and laughter so much he crafted an amazing life around them. Schleyer was a wildlife researcher, an artist, a writer, a philosopher, and a consummate hunter. He was killed and eaten by a grizzly while bow-hunting moose alone in the Yukon in September 2004. Virtually penniless at the time of his death, he was described by friends and colleagues around the world as the happiest man they'd ever known. He spent much of his 49 years roaming the wilds of Wyoming, Africa, Montana, Alaska, Asia, and finally the Yukon. He trapped grizzlies and tigers for a living, putting radio collars on them so they might be studied and preserved. In his spare time, Schleyer hunted with a homemade longbow he based on a 4,700-year-old design, handcrafted from Russian ash and tiger sinew.
0: Right. So this guy was the real deal, and it would seem also very charismatic and beloved by his friends and family. But the most important factual information seems to be that he was a consummate bear expert. Right. He even worked for the interagency grizzly bear study at Montana State University, where he learned live bear-trapping skills. He had also spent time in Russia live-trapping Siberian tigers for study. Mm. So that's the Mm -hmm. kind of guy this person is. And his friends uh, later said that the idea that a bear could sneak up on him, especially a grizzly, is virtually impossible. So that's just something to keep in mind. Even though that article... Which is outside of the missing 411. And that's what we we like to look at other sources so that we have multiple angles on things. That article is like, he was killed and eaten by a grizzly bear. There might be more to that. And we're going to get to that here in a second. Yes, yes, exactly. So here's an additional excerpt from the Outdoor Life article that details a particular trip that he had taken with his friends. And this goes to a little bit of his background. Uh, This is a separate hunting trip. This isn't related to his death. So he's out with his friends, uh, Booth and Adams, hunting. And this was a crazy
1: story that happened while they were on a hunt. Mid afternoon on the fifth day, the four men were on a ridge miles from camp when they spotted a huge brown bear moving to bed. When they got to 125 yards, Booth and Adams decided to hang back and watch the final stalk. Schleyer and Schaefer, who was filming this, made it into a gully 50 yards away when the bear heard something, got up, and came straight at them. That's when Adams realized that Schaefer was still filming. His shotgun was on his back. I was thinking this could get bad real quick, Adams recalls. But Bart waited for the bear to step forward at 20 yards and expose its ribs, slightly quartering to him. Then he got up and drew. The bear saw Bart just as he released, putting the arrow right behind its shoulder. Luckily, instead of attacking, the bear ran off 40 yards, looked back, and then dove into the alders and died. Only Paul and Bart could have gotten away with something like that.
0: Right. So this is a guy that seemed to have understood bear behavior well enough to survive most encounters with something like that. But coming back to the circumstances of his disappearance, he had hired a float plane to take him to an area Mm -hmm. called Reed Lakes in the Yukon Territory. This is due east of Alaska's eastern, the vertical north-south straight line border. Paulides said a friend indicated that the fishing was not great there and there was very little wildlife there. So he didn't really understand why Bart went there. And that's something I want to talk about a little bit too, Mm -hmm. because it reminds me of, if you're going the paranormal route, that (laughs) reminds me a little bit of the compunction to go somewhere and either go ill-prepared or be drawn to an area like you think with um, Terry Lovelace Lovelace and the Devil's Den incident, if you haven't heard that. But uh, when the pilot came back for Bart, there was no sign of him. His tent was knocked down, but the pilot couldn't say what did it. At his campsite was his bear spray, a VHF radio, and a knife, essentially most of his supplies. Now, the pilot left and told the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. After a flyover, they found nothing, and then Bart's friends went out to the area, and across the lake from his tent, they found his inflatable boat. And then 60 feet inland from there was a full bag of gear. Leaning on a tree close by was Bart's bow and arrows, which is what he used to hunt with. Now, Bart's friends thought it looked like Bart had been sitting on the bag of supplies that was otherwise unused. They thought maybe Bart had been calling moose in the area. And here's another little excerpt from that article, Mm -hmm. the Outdoor Life article. Schleyer was a gifted moose caller. Rout says so good that he once called in a grizzly bear while they were hunting. Rout had to climb a tree to escape the charge. (laughs) Yeah. Bart had flown in on September 14th, arranged for pickup on September 28th. On October third, the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, went out to do a grid search, and sixty yards from where the bow and arrow were found, quoting Politus here, a skull and a few teeth were found. They also found a pair of camouflage pants, a camera, and a few small bones. This was later proven to be Bart. Now, here's a strange part: Politus mentions, as do several articles online, that there was a lot of bear and wolf scat at the scene, and it was positively identified to have contained Bart's remains. Mm-hmm. So. Clearly, the bears and the wolf had come and eaten him after he had passed away. Right. But there were no clothes in the remains. Paulitas points out that when bears eat people, what goes in comes out. That's jewelry, clothes, everything. And there was none of that present, which is very unusual. Bart's campsite across the lake uh, seemed to imply that he'd only spend one night there. They also found Bart's balaclava with no blood or puncture wounds or bite marks in it which was strange because bears normally go for the head and neck first. Paulitas mentions that the coroner said the skull had no puncture or bite marks on it at all. So the strange thing is that he had taken his pants off for some reason or seemed to have. Why would he do that in a mosquito infested area? Also, it seems like whatever took him got him quick, snuck up on him. An international hunter with decades of experience tracking big game, specifically bears, Yep. And tigers, but well, there are no tigers in this area. But he knew about them too. So the implication here is, and I want to be clear that mm-hmm. Polidus does not conjecture on what may have killed anyone in this book. He only conjectures about the circumstances.
1: And I believe he never usually does that. Offers right. a speculative cause. Uh, some people don't like that he does that. They they want him right. to offer a conclusion. But I think with him, he's like, look, I I can't do that yet. Yeah, I'm just presenting it. So anyway, just keep that in mind. Is that. Uh, He's not saying that there is anything, uh, let's say, paranormal or supernatural, but a lot of people will read into this and say, yeah, that's what he's saying. It's like, yeah, it's too strange. It's between the lines,
0: right? So he mostly just conjectures about the circumstances, like Forrest said. But the implication here from an investigation standpoint, by Politis anyway, is that Bart camped that first night, probably cooked, and maybe the smell of the cooking attracted Mm -hmm. something from somewhere. Then the next day, he went hunting, and whatever that something was got him, but not before he got at least partially undressed, if not completely, because none of his clothes or personal effects were found either in the scat or anywhere else, for that matter, besides the lightly damaged pants. Now, another consistent theme in the book is that Paulitus makes frequent reference to the behavioral study of missing persons. He mentions a particular book that he cites frequently that he says is a statistical representation of what people of varying age groups tend to do when they go missing. This is based on search and rescue data gathered from multiple cases. Now, the book is called Lost Person Behavior. It's by Robert Koester, K-O-E-S-T-E-R. It was published in 2008. It has five stars on Amazon with 306 mm-hmm. ratings. Seems like a very solid source of information for politus. Coaster has a PhD in search theory from the University of Portsmouth, and I actually ordered this book. I I think I'm Mm going to get it tomorrow, if I'm lucky. Politis also talks about children that have gone missing, and they are later found having traveled an exceptional distance far outside of what is reasonably possible for their age, as well as, in the cases Politis mentions anyway, a great vertical height. And oftentimes they wind up, whether they are recovered alive or sadly dead, on very high ground or complex technical terrain, like a talus. Yeah, uh, A talus slope is like a slope of broken rocks. I actually had to look this up because I was like, I know what an alluvial fan is, but I didn't mm-hmm. understand what this is. You probably already knew it, Forrest. Geologists define talus as the pile of rocks that accumulates at the base of a cliff chute or slope. The formation of a talus yeah. slope results from the talus accumulation.
1: Yeah, like, like scree. If you've ever yeah. gone hiking, what I can tell you is that it's hard to climb and it's very easy. You, you can nearly slip impossible. and you'll, uh, yeah, yeah. you'll slide down a long ways. Yeah. You're not careful.
0: Another consistency is that they are, in these cases anyway, searched for by huge teams of professionally trained individuals who often have bloodhounds and tracking dogs, uh, helicopters that sometimes have FLIR, forward-looking infrared, and grid search coordinators. They conduct these huge searches, come up with nothing, and then the missing person is either found well within the search area that was initially covered at a later date by happenstance, or they Mm -hmm. are found in a more contemporaneous date, but impossibly far away and in terrain That has a high limit of navigability
1: so and we've heard that quite a bit too where people are found again i think it's it's just probably a a weird human statistic where people are found where an area has been thoroughly searched yes and somehow you go back again and that's where they were and they just got missed the first time
0: and it doesn't make sense and especially if they're right out in the open and it's the case where you look at this guy bart it's like he couldn't have been more prepared aside from being alone But it's clear that something snuck up on him and something got him. And of course, a grizzly expert can be killed by a grizzly. There's a documentary (laughs) where that happens.
1: But like... I'm not sure I would call him a grizzly expert. He spent a lot of time with them, but he's learned their behavior. But he also prophetically, like a lot of these people said, like, yeah, I'll probably be killed by one. And he was. And sadly, though, his, uh, his girlfriend was also. and Yeah they're very unpredictable and and so yeah, when what you was talk that about that film was the, uh,
0: Grizzly Man was that the name of that
1: Grizzly Man and uh, you know this uh, that was a Werner Herzog documentary and yes. the yeah. weird and really sad thing about it is that uh, i think the girlfriend had the camcorder going during the first yes. attack yeah. And probably fortunately she had the lens cap on. So you get the audio and it's just, yeah. it's horrific, but he, he tried to gauge their behavior. And what happened is that that group of bears that he was hanging out with that, again, they just tolerate you. We're right. not friends with them. Yeah. You know, as much as he wanted to believe that and that group left. And then uh, some other rogue bears come in late in the season. He was there later than he should have been. So anyway, what I was going to say, though, is somebody who has studied predator, large predator behavior for that long, and is an expert, especially tracking and hunting and all that, it is just unusual that he would let something sneak up on him.
0: Yeah. And the circumstances of this thing with the, where the clothes are missing, and uh, the other thing that was missing was Schleyer's boots. And right. that's something that is consistent. Boots seem to disappear and are never yeah. found and boots are heavy and they could sit outside for decades and you're still gonna have, especially if they're leather and have rubber soles, a lot of them is still gonna be around. And they're saying, no, these are gone. And so
1: that's a little bit of
0: a weird uh, thing, but you know, we've got to start putting all these things together.
1: my name is Gabe Golden. I don't have much time, but Astonishing Legends will be right back.
0: Next person we want to talk about, Corey Fay. This was a 17-year-old named Corey Fay, F-A-Y, who disappeared in 1991 in Oregon. He was an accomplished young elk hunter with outdoor survival training and a good deal of hunting experience. He was on a hunting trip with two friends. They all decided to split up, go different directions. Mm -hmm. And when they regrouped at their pre-agreed upon area, Corey didn't show up. 250 searchers checked 12 square miles and some of the best SAR, Search and Rescue, S-A-R, dogs from Salt Lake City came to help. No trace of Corey was found. Now, people speculated that he may have been accidentally killed by another hunter and buried, which, you know, one has to wonder if that happens from time to time. Mm. People are afraid they're going to be charged with murder for an accident. Sure. So, you know. Or manslaughter, at least, yeah. Yeah, or manslaughter. Searches went on for a long time, but a little less than a year later, Two hunters found Corey's belongings spread out over a mile up on a ridge they were hunting on. Now, this is another consistency that Politis talks about. Mm
1: -hmm. A lot
0: of times when something is discovered later on, it's on a ridgeline. Right. And he doesn't know why, but he'll say the belongings will be found on a ridgeline spread out over a great distance. Corey's things were at an elevation of 6,500 feet and 10 miles from where he was last seen. That was also 3,000 feet higher than his last known location. According to Politus, a quarter mile from his backpack, searchers found small bone fragments and one tooth. Again
1: with the tooth.
0: Yeah. There's a theme here, as we said, with the ridgelines, and also there's a very common idea of a higher elevation and sometimes yeah. great distance from the last known location. What right. drives people to go to those elevations? Are they driven there or are they taken there? I think is the implication, which he doesn't say, I'm saying that I'm saying, right, right, right. He never says, I wonder
1: what took him there. I'm saying that <laughs> I want to be clear on that. If you could imagine yourself. And again, a lot of this can be uh, well, unless you have the information, but imagine yourself in that scenario. And if you're lost, you might go to a higher elevation or clearing to get your bearings, right? Right. To get a lay of the land, see where you're at, see if there's any, uh through line that you can make through the woods that you can make because, uh, People think like, well, I'll just walk a line through the woods. Like that might be impassable. It yeah. might be so thick with underbrush that you just won't make it. Where right. you get to a, a series of a rock outcropping and there's a uh, there's large crevasse you can't make, or it always looks different and for, and closer than you think. And then when you get up to it, it's like, oh, yeah, that didn't look that steep. And then now you're right up on it. And it's like, I'm not that good of a climber. But this is what's weird about these cases that, yeah, they were found at a higher elevation, but not for a known reason. There's no logical reason for them to have gone that far, especially... It's not only that. It's
0: illogical if you're lost. And based on that lost person behavior, you don't go to higher ground.
1: Because you're going away. You're getting further away. not Further from safety. You
0: go down. You go low. You find water, especially people with survival training, follow the water, whatever. You don't go way up high. So what is it that drew Corey up there? Now, here's the other thing. They never found his pants. They never found his boots or his socks. You know, again, Polydus is like, where did the boots go? It just doesn't make sense. But the main point in this case, he says, is Corey would have known better than go up so high. Why did he go up so high and so far away? Right. And a reminder, Bart Schleyer's boots were missing too, even though yep. it was fairly obvious where he had died. Although not so obvious what killed him because he might not necessarily have been killed by what ate him. We don't
1: know that. That's true. And they're scavengers. They'll pretty much eat anything.
0: Yeah. One of the other things he talks about, and it's a strong theme in his book, and we're not focusing on it a whole lot necessarily. We're Mm -hmm. kind of focusing on these specific cases, but is that the National Park Service is not tracking these cases. It's not keeping track of them in a responsible way. And it's certainly not reporting on them to the public to say, hey, look, this happened here or there. I think it's better now because of his books, because when you go to do the research now, you can find most of the people he mentions. You can find at least a couple of web pages on them. Mm-hmm. But I think they probably got added to all these sites after uh, Mr. Politis wrote all these books, frankly, from public pressure. Some victims, according to uh, Politus's book, have never made mm-hmm. it onto any missing person list. This would be as of 2011. Right. There were some that just, they aren't listed anywhere, which isn't right because then investigations aren't even closed. And in some ways they're not even opened. So that's yeah. an issue for obviously the families who are looking for lost loved ones. Let's go now to another case. It's Charles McCuller. He stands out in Politis' first book, the one we're Mm -hmm. talking about tonight. He was 19 when he disappeared in February of 1975. Now, during his investigation of this case, Politis ran into a lot of brick walls trying to get information, was even told that the Park Service destroyed records relating to this case because they didn't have the space for storage, which... (laughs) that's you know we've heard that time and again right when it comes to old or cold cases
1: yeah i know and i think it's a mix too of like it's easy to uh i mean it's just it's just kind of a dumb excuse but it's a very bureaucratic one and i understand that point but then again it's like you're fueling people's conspiracy theories it's like nasa it's like oh we erased all the videotape accidentally of all the original moon landing footage right right. you know what and like Yeah. yeah we usually just recycle it it's like you can't buy more yeah, tape. You yeah. have to recycle that. And that's what accidentally got erased. Then, you know, of course it sparks people thinking like, well, what was on them? Yeah. Huh? What was yeah. on the original ones? Why did you have to get rid of it? Maybe you didn't get rid of it. You're just claiming you did. Yeah. And then case closed. We're all a bunch of dummies. Stop talking about it. Right. Right. But what I'm saying is that I could see both sides. It's like, yeah, I've seen really stupid bureaucratic things happen when people aren't paying attention, it's nobody's job. Nobody wants to bother with it. Right. And you have these dumb rules. And then on the other hand, I do think sometimes things are embarrassing. So right. they just get ignored and yeah. then it's like, you have an excuse. And I always wonder about a uh, FOIA request. It's like, I know that there's a, usually a FOIA officer or somebody who is there at this agency who is tasked with providing the information and documents that are asked for. And also of course, there's a redaction process that happens because they they can't tell you everything. And I get that too, but I always wonder, it's like if they didn't send you something, how would you know?
0: You're relying
1: on the people there to provide the right documents and be truthful. And I, I think that's not to paint them in a bad light. I'm just saying that uh, I trust that they're taking their job seriously and they have a lot of respect for what they do. But but how do you know? Here's the thing though.
0: I can see somebody comes along, it's 40 years later. Everybody that originally worked yeah. on it is retired or dead. And then it's just some old folder that says McCullough, you know, 1976. Mm-hmm. They don't even look in it. They're just like Right. I need we need this file cabinet for <laughs> all the kids that are smoking weed yeah. on the north face. So like let's right. get rid of this. Yeah. And we're, you know, I'm just going to get rid of it. I'm going to throw it away. This case yeah. never going to be. Solved. 1976. Is anyone even asking about
1: this anymore? And then they just throw it away. It's funny to me. Is I've uh, gotten older and more experienced, just people's attitudes about stuff. And some people just, they don't care about any of the stuff that we're talking about. Right. Or it's like the detective's wife in the Suburban Man case. Yes. He had a whole shed of like all this original stuff. Probably, I think the, the suitcase, the valise, and all that. Yeah. She's like, ah, no, I don't, The shed's ugly. Yeah, and it's going away. I don't care about this uh, this chap found on the beach. Who cares? She burned that, didn't she? I think she
0: burned. Yeah, that. she. Yeah, I it think she. Well, I think she was yeah. mad at it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But
1: but to my point is like it doesn't matter that it's, it's tied to this nat- You know, one of Australia's most famous, probably the famous unidentified person case, it didn't matter to her. It's like yeah, this is just garbage. Yeah. So people have different attitudes, and that informs their actions. And again, if this is uh, nothing can be progressed on with these cases, it's like, well, it should just go away. There are loved ones and friends of these people who don't want it to go away. That's not good enough. No. I don't accept that.
0: All right. So coming back to Charles here, McCuller, he was 19 years old at the time. Again, he was a very communicative traveler. He reached out to his mm-hmm. parents regularly to tell him where he was. He was taking this trip to Crater Lake where he hoped yeah. to
1: photograph the lake during the winter. I've uh, flown over it many times. It's very spectacular. Wizard Island. Yeah.
0: yeah, it's beautiful. This is in Oregon, by the way. If you haven't been there yourself, mm-hmm. you look at it online. The pictures are gorgeous and he wanted to take pictures. So, he set out and he had told a friend if he, he didn't return by a pre-agreed time to try to figure out what happened to him and that so that friend was like, "Oh, he didn't show up. I'm going to file a missing person report." Well, in October of 1976, almost 2 years later, uh, some hikers, way off normal trails, found a backpack and a scarf. Politus describes this as a very remote and desolate area where they found this stuff. And he was able to track down one of the original Park Service law enforcement rangers who was involved in the case and came upon the scene after these guys found it. Mm-hmm. The officer's named name's Marion Jack, uh, is a great name, Marion Jack, <laughs> said that when they got to the scene, they saw a pair of pants that looked like someone was standing, this is quoted, standing straight up and melted straight down into them, end quote. He noted that the belt buckle and the pants snap was undone, but they must not have been fully taken off because when he reached into them, he found one broken tibia or fibula in the right leg. It was broken in the middle and had blood on each end, according to Politis. There were no other bones in the pants or in the area The underwear was mostly gone, except for elastic, and the leather belt was still in pretty good shape. Under the pants, Mary and Jack found socks with some small bones inside, but there were no boots. Once again, the boots are gone. As the searchers walked out in an expanding circle, five feet away, they found an upside down skull and lower jawbone. Then, according to Apolletus, some very small bone fragments. No larger bones were present. None. So Marion could not figure out why the pants and belt were unbuckled, nor where the boots went, and only one bone in the pants. Marion told Politus that bears will take a piece of a body and walk with it, mm-hmm. but these were all eaten on the scene, something that he had never seen before. Paulides adds that to get to this location, McCuller would have had to walk 14 miles on 105 inches of fresh snow. There was expensive camera equipment that was never found as well as his knife that he carried on his hip. Now, the fact that this camera equipment wasn't there has led his dad to believe that it was foul play and that somebody stole his gear. Right. Now, there's a lot of cases with people seemingly leaving their clothing behind early on in their disappearance. In 1940, a 14-year-old boy named Billy Coleman vanished while playing outside when his mother looked away for just a few minutes. On the first day of searching, they found his clothes 250 yards from where he'd last been seen. Not all of them, but most of them. Mm -hmm. 500 searchers could not find Billy. And Paulides feels the fact that he took all his clothes off right after he vanished doesn't make sense. He explains that could not be paradoxical undressing, which comes with extreme cases of hypothermia. I mean, it was cool. It was, you know, down uh, that first night, I think it got down into the 30s, but this was early on in his disappearance. Now, we'll talk more about, again, the paradoxical undressing later, although long-time listeners will remember we covered it pretty thoroughly when we covered (laughs) Diatlov Pass. Yeah. But there's numerous cases in the book where dogs seem to have no ability to pick up a scent also, or no interest in tracking the victims. These are tracking dogs that often come from other states and have successfully tracked hundreds of people. In multiple versions of these cases, they either lose the scent, can't pick it up, or are disinterested in it. Now, Paulides, again, doesn't suggest a reason for this, nor does he suggest reasons for most of these unexplained things. While some people seem to take issue with that, we don't. He's Hmm. telling the story so the reader can draw whatever conclusions they might. And we'll be drawing ours in part two, but just giving you guys some Mm -hmm. heads up there. There is another case of a young man named Dana Cooper who vanished from Camp Arcade in Soda Springs, California in 1971, age of 13. This was a camp for mentally challenged children. Uh, Dana was described by his parents as having the mental capacity of a five-year-old and he was unable to speak. On the fourth day of the search for him, Volunteers heard a sound, in quotes, which is not described. It was too late to investigate, so they went the next day in the morning and found Dana in, quote, head-high brush sitting in the shelter of three fallen trees that had formed a sanctuary, end quote. He'd been missing five days and had lost his shoes and socks. Paulitus wonders what made the sounds the volunteers heard since Dana couldn't speak. He also points out that Dana was found near the base of a mountain called Devil's Peak. He has an interest in how that got named.
1: <laughs> As we've seen, there's a reason
0: usually. Yeah, we brought this up before. Politus speculates about it repeatedly in the book with other folks, and they find them at Devil's Peak, Devil's Punch Bowl, Devil's Creek, the Devil's Dance Floor. Politus wants to know why these places are called that, and we've talked about this before.
1: No, that's been discussed uh, with... Terry Lovelace's investigations is that generally, again, it's not just for publicity or a funky, cool name. These are real old names, either handed down from the earlier pioneers or even passed down from the native peoples who lived there before and are Latinized, you could say. Yes. That usually there's a reason. It's like Spirit Lake. It's not fun and that it's high spirits, everybody. You're going to have fun. It's because... Native peoples believe they often saw spirits floating around in the area. These aren't the first instances of stuff like this happening. But you can just say, well, there you go. Sasquatch wants your boots. Yeah. But why there? You know, it's like, again, these things don't make sense to people who do search and rescue. Oh, you know what? You just
0: made me think of. Interesting. Hmm? Even to this point, I am not strongly
1: leaning towards Bigfoot here. (laughs) I'm not. Right. If you're going there, Scott, if you're going there, they're big feet. They're big feet. These aren't going to fit. They're not going to fit. But maybe, yeah, maybe but they're juveniles, present for their juveniles. Here's the other thing. Yeah. If a juvenile Bigfoot takes some boots, they might be
0: aware that they can run all over the woods in them. And if somebody <laughs> sees them, no one's going right. to think twice because it's a boot print. Right. It's a person. <laughs> well, they're
1: yeah, Maybe they figured out weird. how to
0: cover their tracks.
1: Literally. Well... <laughs> just thinking just thinking not, uh, you know this is the formation of our line of thinking with this whole series here and that is this weird is it not is this something to pay attention to that's really the big question here because these things are happening and yeah. what is found is happening now some extra things have been found later that have been described yeah. and some things were missed initially So you have to take all these factors into consideration. And again, folks, we're just looking at these specific cases because there's so many of them. And if you're starting off, uh, like I said, I've poked around some other books and documentaries after this, and there are some very even weirder things. Yeah. And especially more that have to do with clusters and patterns. But again, that's it's too broad for our scope here. But let's look at the specifics that are starting to develop just in the cases that we're talking about now. Well, here's another one,
0: and I got my own theory on this one. Bear with me here. This was October of 2008. Christopher Andrews, 42, goes on a five-day trip mm-hmm. near the northern perimeter of Yosemite National Park. Now, Christopher had a PLB, or a personal locator beacon. Now, I used to have one of these because yeah. I would get nervous about being out in the southwest remotely. Yes. This is a, a great little thing. It's about the size of a walkie-talkie. And it broadcasts, I think I've talked about these on the show before, but it'll broadcast an emergency signal with a GPS position that will bring rescuers to you.
1: If you can afford one, we recommend everybody should try and get one if you can. Yeah, Yeah.
0: you really should get one. It's great, but you don't hit that button unless you're in deep doo-doo. Because when you hit that button, it's like a quarter million dollars is spent getting to you and (laughs) bringing you out wherever you are. And the way that it works is it works by satellite. When you press the button, It sends a signal up, it needs a view of the sky, that's it. It sends a signal up to the satellites that will then send your GPS signal out to the closest uh, search and rescue people or emergency people. Christopher Andrews, he's 42, he's on a five-day trip near, again, the northern perimeter of Yosemite Park. He activates his PLB, his personal locator beacon, but emergency services couldn't get to him the night it went off due to bad weather, so they went the next day, Saturday. Helicopter went out looking for him, but the PLB shut down, the battery probably died. They couldn't find him. So then they had to wait for the weather to clear, and they found his body in a crevasse. He had fallen to his death. Now, here's my personal theory on this one. As yep. Someone who spent a good deal of time on boats, and also someone who's taken a few of the basic Coast Guard classes to be able to charter sailboats alone— Mm-hmm. I can tell you one of the main causes of a man overboard scenario, and I'm specifically talking about men here, right. and also people lost at sea, is folks peeing off the side of the boat. It's just a fact. <laughs> yeah. And they'll tell you that when you take the classes. Right. you are like, especially if you're single-handing a boat, never attempt to pee off the edge of the boat. <laughs> this goes yeah. for men, because women wouldn't be this stupid. But men do it all the time. <laughs> right. Now, like Politus, I can't tell you why Christopher was up on such a high peak, because bad weather was coming in, and he would have mm-hmm. seen that. Right now, but as someone who's been out and done stupid stuff myself, it could be, you know one day I went w- with a friend way past the day hike limit into the Grand Canyon and almost didn't make it out before it got cold, very cold at night. yeah, I think because I it's that. like I want to go down far enough to actually put my eyes on the Colorado River, and so right. p- people do that, and so maybe maybe he was there, and he was like, "If I can get up to that peak and get back down before the storm gets here and get back down to safety, and then maybe he's up on the peak and he's like I gotta go to the bathroom. Maybe he goes <laughs> take a leak. Yeah. And then he falls down into the crevasse and you know, and I'm not belittling what happened to him, you know, no, he's no, a victim no. here. It's horrible, but I'm just saying in a lot of cases, I think that does happen with folks who are hiking dudes, especially I'm going to go pee off the cliff. You go, know, cause we're all three-year-olds at heart. It's like, Hey, I'm going to pee off this thing. And the pee's going to go way down a thousand <laughs> feet. And
1: you know, and if, if you make a mistake, you can fall. Right, but wouldn't there be some evidence of that since they found him fairly recently? Depends on the condition of mm-hmm. what
0: is the status of the clothes and the decomposition. That's what I'm saying. You might
1: not be able to tell. Yes, but it was only a few days after he went missing that they found him. So yeah,
0: that's true. So maybe that's not the case here. And there's another case, and I don't even know if I, I you know, if we're going to talk about it because I can't remember. Yeah. There's so many that we're going over here. There's another case where somebody fell too, and I'm always just like they were peeing. They were
1: trying to be, but that's just, well, you know, you know what it is nowadays is yeah. somebody taking a selfie and it's, oh, yeah. it's a tragedy and that's that happened. keeps repeating over. It yeah. just happened like a, a week or two ago. And, yeah. uh, where I think a whole family, uh, was trying to save a, a young woman, you know, she'd fallen into some rough raging water and I, I only saw the headline, but they went to try to save her and the whole family gets lost. So <sighs> that happens nowadays. And it's like, you know, again, that's people being too foolhardy. But what we're talking about here is people who know the conditions, right? And they're usually yeah. survived and continue to visit these places because they're not foolhardy. They're prepared. Yeah, They study that's true. the terrain that they're in. They that's know true. what to uh, expect and they become prepared for that. But again, on the other hand, yeah, I've seen people who get too comfortable. Yeah. I'm talking about experienced mountain climbers. Yeah, uh, I think Kim Mom was another one that was uh, you know, from the Northwest and again, people get real familiar with stuff and then you get careless because you think you know what you're doing. And then that was one decision too many.
0: And who knows? I mean, what Politis is implying with this particular case is like, you know, this is another case of the guy going up super high in the face of an oncoming storm in a dangerous situation. What made him do that? Did something take him up there? Mm -hmm. Did something scare him up there? And then he fell? Was he pushed? Those are the unwritten sort of ideas in the book. I'm not saying he's saying that because he doesn't say that, but he just says, this is a little bit fishy. We should think about it. Mm -hmm. Hi, this is Rhonda Sparks. And when I'm not checking out spooky stories to small children in Indiana,
1: I'm listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Dobrik and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show.
0: So let's talk about this case. 1995. This woman named Jeannie Heschelswirt. I think it's Jeannie's J E A N N E. And I have a friend mm-hmm. with that name, and her name is Jeannie. So I'm going to go with Jeannie instead of Jean. Heschelswirt uh, disappeared while on a trip with her boyfriend. They had been dating ten years and were recently engaged. Now, according to Politus, uh, relatives describe their relationship as loving. And of course, there's a million datelines in 2020s where there was mm. it was a loving relationship, and still the husband right. did it. But anyway. They arrived in an area in Yosemite, decided to take a couple of short hikes, after which they were going to meet up in about 15 minutes at an agreed-upon place. Jeannie never showed up. Her boyfriend, Mike, went to find someone to help. A search ensued that covered 40 square miles, 100 searchers, 8 dog teams. There were fears of an animal attack, but a park spokesman said that was unlikely. Not impossible, but unlikely. Now, after two weeks, they could find nothing, and they gave up. But they had found two boot impressions of hers one where she was last seen and one crossing a major trail. And they couldn't figure out why she would cross that trail rather than follow it. Now, Mike conjectured that maybe she had gone over to some boulders to soak in the sun, but then the dogs also, they could pick up no scent. They, as Polita says, either couldn't or wouldn't pursue a scent. Now, obviously, Mike becomes a suspect, so they ask him to take a polygraph. He does, and he passes with flying colors. The family then is convinced there's foul play. She's been kidnapped or something. They asked the FBI to get involved. There were 60 hours of helicopter time, ground searchers, bloodhounds, witness interviews, all of that. Three months later, early September, a Yosemite resident, a local basically from Yosemite Valley, was fishing with a friend and they saw a body in a small pool. It had been there several weeks, according to the rescuers. Mike told reporters that the area where the body was found was inaccessible to anyone other than rock and mountain climbers, adding that it was extremely rugged. She was also found nude except for her socks and one boot. Someone from the park said that her body could not have gotten there by water transport because there were too many blockages. So that rules out her falling in somewhere else and winding up there from you know, flooding or, or mm-hmm. water flow. She was found at an elevation of 5,300 feet and three miles from where Mike had last seen her at 7,000 feet. Politas did a FOIA request for more information on the case with the FBI and was denied citing privacy concerns. So this is another situation where it's odd. She's three miles away from where mm-hmm. they split up. So... True crime fans are going to be like, "Well, he made up the whole story about the fifteen-minute hike and meet back. He they went somewhere else and he killed her." And you know, I don't know, but he passed the mm-hmm. polygraph test according to Politis. and the location of her body was particularly unusual and also not very well concealed. Right, if it was a murder, so you 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 do wonder about how she wound up where she wound up.
1: Yeah, it's it's odd. Yeah,
0: but it also uh, one boot found, not yeah, the other one. One boot found. So. Now, here is one of the craziest cases from the book. I'm actually just going mm-hmm. to read this one. It's kind of short. This is from page 138 of The Missing 411, Western United States and Canada. It's about a, a young man named David Huckins, H-U-C-K-I-N-S, went missing on February 4th, 1986, Camp Curry, California. He's 21 years old. David Huckins was an employee at the Awanee Hotel in Yosemite in February of 1986. He was last seen near his residence in Camp Curry. His dad stated that he last saw David wearing a jogging outfit and was told that he was going to go jogging in a westerly direction. David was reported missing, and a subsequent search failed to find him. I'm going to repeat my listener discretion warning for the rest of this. Be advised. It's graphic. According to articles printed in the Fresno Bee and the Modesto Bee and Farabees off the wall, that's an author that Politis cites regularly, who uh, wrote a book about multiple cases in Yosemite specifically. Sounds like a really fascinating book, actually. On July 6th, a human arm was found near Lower River Campground, though two reports indicate it was Lower Pines Campground. One day later and two miles away, David's torso and other pieces of him were found in the Merced River near Happy Isles. On October 11th, David's scapula and distal humerus were found one mile above the Happy Isles footbridge. And this is Polita speaking here. I scoured every news service for additional articles about David Huckins' disappearance and could find nothing. This is a very disturbing case from many angles. David disappeared in February, according to the Modesto Bee. February and Yosemite can be very cold, and bears mm-hmm. are in hibernation. What would have chewed David into pieces? Could normal decomposition have accounted for David being found in pieces? It seems very odd that a piece of David is found on land, and other pieces are found in the river. It's amazing there were not additional news stories about this disappearance. It almost appears the story was not talked about because of the potential for bad press. So this is a pretty extreme case. Obviously, folks are going to be thinking about what scavengers do, and we're going to talk about that before we finish part one tonight. Yeah. But these pieces of this poor young man were found spread apart miles and miles and in different types of terrain and it does beg the question what kind of animal would do that and this also was during a
1: time when the bears should have all been hibernating right so you got to look to a strong animal that can drag a whole arm a whole leg a whole torso right a long distance and yeah. then you have to look at uh, well was any of it chewed on because yeah there's animals scurrying about foxes this and that and, and animals that will scavenge but we're talking most likely logically a, a much larger predator-type or scavenger-type animal.
0: Right. You know, a lot of people talk about mountain lions, and here's the reality is the mountain lions don't attack people very often. And I actually took a look at a particular list. It was just for the state of California, but listen Mm -hmm. to this. This list goes back to 1994, I think, if I remember correctly, up until 2022 or 21 or something. In that whole time, 21 attacks in the entire state of California. And remember, Northern Mm -hmm. California is very rugged. This is not far from those areas we're talking about. 21 attacks by mountain lions in all of California for decades and decades, going back to 94. Only three of those were fatal. The Mm -hmm. three fatal ones was a 40-year-old female in April of 94, a 56-year-old female in December of 94, and then a 35-year-old male in January of 2004. And then the months that those happen in, two were in September and two were in August. Now, I point that out. We haven't really brought it up a lot here, the dates. And we're not focusing on the geography as much as Mr. Politis does. If if you want to do that, you can get his books because he does put these into clusters that happen in certain parts of the country. And then he also focuses on dates. And a lot of them are in September and August. They're in the uh, late fall. And also on the California website, there's a note at the end of that one report. It says, according to historical reports, four fatal incidents involving six victims occurred around the turn of the prior century. Mm-hmm. So even even with all of them, we're talking about seven going way back to the prior century. So right. that's just something to think about with mountain lions. And then the bear situation, I don't have statistics on that, but that particular case with David Huckins is particularly disturbing and very hard to understand, regardless of how you think Mr. Politis is presenting the information for the people Mm -hmm. who are critical. Here is another case that I thought was pretty fascinating. This is three young boys, ages seven, five, and three, who all went missing at once. These two families were picnicking with their kids. They were at 10,000 feet in elevation at the Santa Fe Ski Basin in northeastern New Mexico. Larry and Janet McGee and their friend, Stephen Cross, were running around playing. These are the kids. At some point, the families realized that they hadn't seen the children for a while and they started looking and couldn't find them. And then of course they panicked. The New Mexico State Police became involved, setting up huge spotlights as the sun was going down that they hoped the kids would see and come towards. 500 searchers organized the next morning to look for them, but Politas points out it was not a very well-orchestrated search. He didn't find evidence of a, a grid pattern being set up. It was maybe a little more haphazard. 28 hours after the three kids had vanished, some armed forces personnel sighted something three and a half miles from where they were last seen. All three kids were thankfully okay, but they were, like in many of these cases, at a higher elevation. Politis explains that Robert Coaster's book on the behavior of missing people states that children one to three years old will be found 99% of the time climbing upwards less than 2,300 feet. And that's over a good distance, not over a Mm -hmm. steep slope. So, and that's something that will come up frequently. These kids had gone up a mountain, not quite 23. They were inside the window of 2,300 feet. There's other cases where it was much further, but they were three and a half miles away. And they said they were chased up the mountain by a bear. And then they said they ate leaves, slept in a hollow log and drank from a stream. Politas points out that young Larry told a reporter that, quote, they had seen some of the searchers, but were afraid to yell because they thought they were big
1: gorillas. Okay, well, yeah, I need mean, like that quote. Uh, not to jump ahead, but you know, one of the critical thinking spots on here is that the problem with this is that you have young children, and right. they don't have the comprehensive abilities and experience and and life skills to describe things properly.
0: Right, and they also might be afraid they're in trouble, and they might That's make true. something up to be like, "Well, I wasn't going to come out because there, there were
1: gorillas." We didn't talk about this in our coverage of Terry Lovelace's book, because right. it was a little too disturbing, but I can talk around it. And I think we did describe it in another related recording, I can't remember where, but, but essentially there's a story there where a 12 year old girl, and remember Terry was an assistant former prosecutor for right. the American territory of American Samoa. So, uh, he had to prosecute crimes and there was one testimony and, uh, I'll just save, Of a 12-year-old girl. So somebody who's not, they're not a a toddler. They're not six years old. This is somebody with some decent faculties to them, right? I think it was somebody, uh, I think it was around 12, but definitely old enough to express themselves completely, but had some crazy things that they said is that, again, the person that was uh, abusing them had these eyes that popped out of their head. Right. And there's strange funny clown music that would play right. when this would happen. And they weren't physically abused, but it was weird. Okay. Right. And so what the truth was, he thought like, what do you mean eyes that popped out of your head like a cartoon? Okay. That sounds like you're making this up, right? right? Is that she's for some reason she's confused or there's some trauma there, there's PTSD and they're just making up something that doesn't make sense. What happens later is they found out is that the person doing this would put on this marching band music and a cassette tape and had those 1950s funny gag glasses where the eyeballs are on springs. Right. And they come out of the glasses. Right. It's like Mr. McBeavy. Right. right. I think exactly. we've had this exact on the We've, had, before, we've yeah. had tons of this. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, we've talked about this a lot before in that what the child is describing is, it's the truth, but it's not something that adults can readily understand because again, the disconnect here is that the child doesn't have the definitions and terms to put it into a, a manner that an adult would understand, right? right? She's describing exactly what she saw and it's accurate. The eyes would pop out of his head, but she didn't say like, Oh yeah, you know what? Those are those gag glasses. I'm sure you've seen them or or there's the Groucho glasses with the mustache and the big nose. What does that mean though? Is that they had seen some searchers, but they were afraid to yell because. Right. And he says, what does that mean too? But that's all he says. It's so funny for us, because
0: when we went through this book and I was picking out the things here that I wanted to talk about, I was like, oh, this is interesting. This is a little strange. And now that I'm going through it again, as we're sharing it with you, our <laughs> listeners. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, oh, you know, like that was the first time I had the thought about the boot. What it, why? I was just like, oh, the boots are gone. The boots are gone. Right. That's weird. The boots are gone. It's like, what if they're wearing the boots? What if <laughs> big feet are wearing the boots? Or what's yeah. the other reason? I honestly have no idea. Right. Or. In this case, did they peekaboo? And they were looking, because they said a bear was chasing them. One of the things that Polita says is a bear is not going to chase a child and not catch it. And also (laughs) subsequently probably eat it or kill it. Yeah, You know, a kid's not going to be chased by a bear. Now, by the same token, you know, those of us who are parents, of course, they're going to be like, they're going to make up the craziest, scariest reason why they (laughs) went away and did the bad thing and didn't come back. Right, and it's like a bear chased us. We thought those were gorillas, so we hid in the log. (laughs) You know, I can totally see that. On the other hand, they're hiding in the maybe they're hiding in the log and they see a
1: bigfoot in the distance.
0: Well, if you if you're willing to go there, or maybe it's
1: a special forces
0: guy wearing a ton of crap. You know, I don't know
1: exactly. And they're right; they're misinterpreting what they're seeing. That that's kind of my point. And again, uh, as with that girl's testimony, it's like that nothing about that was wrong. Yeah, what you described uh, was accurate, but when we hear that, it's like that sounds ridiculous. Nobody's he- eyes pop out of your head and yeah, bounce right. back in, and it's funny, right. you know. Right. And so we're not getting it. It's like, oh yeah, if you think about it this way, this is why you bring up an interesting point here. This is why after we go through the book, and you said like, oh, I'm at this distance, I'm at uh, this this chapter, this and that. I yeah, kept yeah. asking you, has your opinion changed? And yeah. you've gone along, what do you think now? And you're like, well, it's still forming and that, that's the way to go. You know, it's like, yeah. it's what we're saying here. It's just like, I'm just asking the questions. I'm just putting this out there. It's like, I can't tell you what that means, but like, that's curious, isn't it? So yeah. as you're going through, I kept asking, it's like, uh, what do you think now? And you're like, well, it's, yeah, it's starting to form. And and I think your opinion about it was about the same as mine. Yes. We must always recommend this. This is a lot of sorrow and tragedy and pain for a lot yeah. of people. Uh, yes. that continues to go on. And in some way, it's good that someone's taken a look at this and there's something more about it than just a, a news story that gets uh, videotaped and gets lost forever, right? Yeah. Now it's just a family yeah. that has to deal with it. What we're talking about here is that what's the trend? And if there is something going on, how can we prevent people in the future from befalling this kind of stuff? But right. I wonder by the time that we get done recording the parts of this, how we're going to feel ourselves. I'm How will the that listener too. feel? How will the I'm listener into- feel as they, yeah, when they get them. Yeah. And again, that's what you tell people is like, go ahead and make comments on this. But remember that there's more to get to. Yeah. It won't be until the end, unless you've read all these books yourself. And, and some of our listeners have, but the people that are just following along, have never heard about this, like, just hang on. It's kind of a wild ride or is it? So tonight, for the end of part one, we're
0: going to leave you with this one story. There's a few of them in Politi's book that really stand out, regardless of your opinion on the big picture of all Mm. of them. And this is one that really caught our attention. On July 4th of 1955, a logger named Mortimer Curtis brought his family to work for the 4th of July weekend, as did all the loggers at the Lee Creek Camp in the Kootenai National Forest. At 1.30 on that day, a two-year-old little girl named Ida Mae Curtis was playing with her older brother, Cecil, who was nine at the time. The family had a tent set up on the edge of camp, and apparently at some point, Ida Mae had seen something in the forest near where the tent was. The kids went back into the family's tent, and apparently after being in there for a few moments, something came into the tent and took Ida Mae. Politi said the kids stated that this thing was a bear and that it left hopping on three legs with Ida Mae. They said it ran into the woods with her. We're not sure why Polita says mm-hmm. kids here, plural, but our assumption is that Ida May and Cecil were playing with some of the other kids at the camp, so there was more than just Cecil right. there to witness this. Ida May's mom came looking for Ida May and couldn't find her anywhere, and no doubt panic ensued. They told the authorities and a large search with 250 people from as far away as Spokane was assembled. Polita stated that Ida May's mother said she would never have left the other children on her own. The search was unfortunately delayed by a fierce rain that was then followed by a snowstorm. This is something else that Politus points out is consistent. Bad weather and storms moving in immediately following these disappearances, or a lot of them. It's weird, right. He never really posits why, but of course our thoughts point to the idea that maybe whatever is doing this can read the impending weather. Mm-hmm. Maybe
1: it's a plan. I don't know more on that in our conclusions in part two, but just keep it in well, mind. Well, I, I will say, people up in that region, I mean, you, you're acutely aware of impending cold weather storms. It can get very windy up there. Most people don't realize yeah. that. And when you go camping, you know that happens a lot. You kind of take your chances. You've had this plan for a while, and if there's a little bit of rain or even a lot of rain, it doesn't really put a damper on it, to, so to speak. But but snow's a different thing. And usually, I've never heard of people taking a family camping trip you know, I would say like late November when it's about to snow, hunters don't mind a little bit of that and they'll go out when it's snowing, but not that heavy. You know, they try and plan that, but especially with little kids, uh, you would probably not try and go camping when the weather's about to turn into winter.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. So I I would just say, yeah,
1: just from a personal experience, it's like, you know, by the end of summer, when it starts to get really chilly at night, like most people with families don't go camping.
0: You think, oh, well, this is kids. Kids are talking about, Mm -hmm. oh, a bear came and took her. You know, or did she, did she really, maybe she just ran into the woods and the kids are saying that it was a bear because they're afraid they're going to be in trouble. Well, listen to this line from page 281 of Politis' book, Missing 411, Western US and Canada. They stated that a bear ran into the woods with a little girl. Curtis, that's the father, confirmed that he thought he saw a bear just about that time running through a creek and it appeared to be carrying something. He stated that he tried to chase the creature, but could not keep up. (laughs) All right, so I'm just going to read this one more time. Mm-hmm. Curtis confirmed he thought he saw a bear just about that time running through a creek, and it appeared to be carrying something. He stated that he tried to chase the creature, but could not keep up. Mm-hmm. The next day, July 5th at 4.30 p.m., Ida Mae was found alive, thank goodness. She was 300 yards from the tent. She showed her parents where she was held by a mother bear. Those are her yeah. words. It was actually some kind of crude shelter across a creek from the campground. And when I say campground, mm-hmm. I mean that the families had all set up tents on the edge of the actual logging camp area. So there there were a lot of tents there. So technically it's really at the, at the logging mm-hmm. camp. Politas writes that the shelter was made of crude cedar slashings that were too heavy for Ida May to have lifted. He adds that she was examined by a doctor and was found to be in perfect condition. No scratches, no bite marks and no effects from exposure. Mm. Well, this all seems like it's a bit far-fetched. We like to find the articles to corroborate these stories when we can. I mean, who ever heard of a bear being able to carry a child anywhere without harming it or even accidentally mm-hmm. killing it? And what bear steals a child and then takes care of it rather than eating it? <laughs> well, we found mm. the Spokane Chronicle article that Politus is citing mm-hmm. here, and the details in it are actually even more amazing
1: than what he indicated in his book. Well, before we read that, just some quick thoughts as I came across the initial story yes. here, uh, jotted them down. It's once again, another mention of possibly a creature with three legs. Yes. One of the first times I'd heard of that is when we covered the Enfield monster. Yes. Not so long ago. Yeah. And some people, uh, a couple of the witnesses swore this thing had three legs, but it may not be the same thing that was seen later in exactly the same area, which had different descriptions. So that's curious, but these people swore, uh, at least uh, some of them, that this thing had three legs. And this is what we found out later that did not make it into the episode, is that there were other reports that were not publicized or recorded by anybody, but were hearsay from people who lived in the town that they indeed did see something that was non-human, possibly three legs, kind of humanoid, and they just didn't tell anybody because you end up, as poor Henry did, being mocked and uh, labeled a uh, an eccentric at the very least. So there were other reports yes. that we learned of. So that was interesting. And then I think across Twitter, I saw another mention. This is a while ago, I kind of forgotten what it was. But uh, our friend John E. L. Tenney had mentioned a story and was uh, kind of uh, playfully talking about creatures with three legs. I tweeted yes. the uh, the cartoon of the Enfield monster with three legs. And is this a thing? Is it just, and again, Sasquatch jokes aside with you, you can fill in the blanks. But if you do wonder if this is some kind of humanoid creature, is this what a two-year-old describes it as? The other thing is the description of the shelter reminds me of our story of the hunter in central Pennsylvania, the crude shelter with pieces of wood.
0: Yes, exactly. That we have video of on our YouTube channel.
1: Pieces of yeah. wood, too too heavy for a two-year-old.
0: Oh, well, we don't have the shelter. No, we no, do. we do, we do we have, do have a picture. Yeah, the it, there is yeah, a still right.
1: photo yeah. of the shelter. Yeah. Uh, on that yeah. thin ledge out in the middle of nowhere. So that's interesting as well. The other thing is the fact of this, whether you think it's a bear or uh, whatever kind of creature you think took her in for uh, the night or nights, is that this is a two-year-old who survived the night in very cold weather if it's about to snow. You know what I'm saying? That like it's getting down to 40 yeah. or 50 degrees. Folks, as an adult, if you go out without a jacket in 50-degree weather, in 40-degree weather... You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. You're going to start shivering very soon. It's going to be very uncomfortable. Somehow this two-year-old made it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And also remember, in terms of the description of the creature, Cecil was nine. Right. So that's a, a lot more communicative than a exactly. two-year-old. Exactly. Yeah. And he, in theory, he was right there to see what happened. It occurs to me that something that looks like it's running on three legs mm-hmm. might be a bipedal yes. mm-hmm. animal that also is partially quadrupedal, like it oh, may yeah. be like an orangutan or a gorilla or some other unknown primate. Right to use a key phrase, that was holding the child in an arm That's, and running on the other three limbs.
1: I hadn't really thought about that. I mean, you, you mentioned this the other yeah, day and I not? was kind of mulling it over in my head, but I think, but I'm now picturing, picture a, uh, like a big silverback gorilla where they have very long arms, short yeah. uh, bottom legs, and they use their arms to kind of run, but they're also carrying something. Would that possibly look like the thing had three legs?
0: Yeah. Especially if you right. couldn't
1: see what it was really carrying, one arm is occupied.
0: Yeah. By the way, we're not saying the word Bigfoot here. <laughs> not
1: a, no, we're not. And we're, that's we're, not on
0: our agenda. That's not my no. agenda with this story. It's just to tell, the, like Politas, it's to say, well, this is what the kid said, and this is what the witnesses said, right. and the dad, yeah. I
1: saw something. I mean, we, I, this is yeah. the thing is, I, I break this down into levels of, uh, let's just say logic uh, as much as it as you can, because the fact is, a two-year-old did go missing overnight in cold overnight weather and came back without a scratch, no hypothermia, was totally fine, was able to describe what the two-year-old thought was some kind of animal. Now, whether she was correct or incorrect, if it was a bear, you know, who knows. But
0: and and Cecil, yeah, uh, who was nine, the same, you have thing. another
1: report by nine and I think
0: other kids, additional kid witnesses. Although that's kind of bad, right, but yeah,
1: so unless they're all in on, on a weird cover story where the kids are playing some strange game and they left the kin out there, now they're they don't want to get in trouble. And they said, Well, a bear did it and they got her to believe it, whatever it is. Yeah, the but dad then, said, but then her dad saw something. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying is that yeah. the, the second level of, of logic with the story is that there is. There's another non-human creature involved you could take your pick as to what kind of creature you want to insert in that but there's at least with all the participants of this story there's another thing that's non-human that's involved in the story and she was returned unharmed and on
0: top of that this guy's a logger He's in the woods all the time. And that goes to something that we like to bring up frequently. These eyewitnesses, people are like, oh, they don't know what they saw. This guy (laughs) lives and works in the woods. So much so that they brought his family to the (laughs) woods for him to see them rather than him getting to go home and hang out with them. He's there all the time. He knows what's out there. And he couldn't really say what it was. He's like, I saw something. So with that. We're going to just share this article because the article, I think, is even more amazing than what Politas put in his book. Yeah. So, uh, Forrest, why don't you share this? And folks, we'll see you on the other side of this with part two in a couple of weeks.
1: Parents feel sure bear kidnapped, sheltered tot. Libby, Montana, July 5th. The parents of a two-year-old Montana girl, found unharmed yesterday after surviving 21 hours alone in the Kootenai National Forest, said today they were firmly convinced a mother bear abducted and sheltered their child during a cold night and rainstorm. Lincoln County Sheriff Ray Frost, on the other hand, said today he believes a bear frightened the girl, Ida Mae Curtis, and that she became lost in running away from it. The Mortimer E. Curtis's, parents of Ida Mae and six other children, said they had talked throughout the night about the finding of their daughter, unharmed, and they were convinced only their theory of abduction by a mother bear could explain the child's condition and remarks she made when safely returned. I don't see why they keep saying that, said Sheriff Frost. I think the child saw the bear and ran off in the opposite direction. The child was found in the opposite direction from where a bear had been seen. She was nowhere near where they said the bear had gone. I think I'll go out and talk with the parents again. Curtis's explained view. Curtis said that this is what he and Mrs. Curtis are convinced happened. Ida May and her brother Cecil, nine, had walked off from camp. Cecil told us Ida May kept looking into the woods and saying, look, look. Cecil got scared and ran back to camp. We think Ida went closer to look and the bear grabbed her. Mrs. Curtis's father not identified by name, who was working with Curtis in the Lee Creek camp 18 miles south of Libby, did see a bear shortly after that, and it was going on three legs, carrying something, Curtis declared. He took out after the bear, but lost it near the creek. Curtis speculated the bear was carrying Ida May, and that it went to the creek and walked a distance in the foot-deep water, then moved off into the woods and fashioned the shelter in which the child was found yesterday at 3.30 p.m. It was impossible for Ida May to get there without being scratched unless she was carried. That bear mothered her all night. She was only 100 yards from a snowbank, and it snowed along with the rain yesterday. Yet she showed no signs of a cold, and her dress wasn't even wet. Men wearing heavy coats were looking for her, and they got chilled, Curtis declared. He added the child's shoes had been muddy when she was last seen in camp, but that they were clean when the girl was found, huddled in a rude shelter of cedar slashings, which were too heavy for her to lift. Her feet must have dragged in the water when the bear weeded the creek, Curtis insisted. And those bloodhounds that helped in the search two were brought from the Montana State Penitentiary at Deer Lodge by the handler George Talbot. They're the best you could get, one particularly. Two or three times they went to the creek, then lost the scent. That's where we think the bear started waiting. Curtis recounted that when he first saw his daughter after she was found, she ran to him, exclaiming, Daddy, bear, bear, big bear, daddy, water. The child repeated, bear, big bear when she was reunited with her mother, Curtis said. Curtis searched for Ida May throughout Sunday night and yesterday. Also searching were from 400 to 450 other volunteers dividing the search into shifts of upwards of 200 men each, Sheriff Frost said. When told yesterday Ida May was safe, Mrs. Curtis cried, thank God I've been praying all day.
0: That's going to wrap up part one of our special series on Missing 411, Western United States and Canada. We'll be back in two weeks with part two. But if you can't wait, join our Patreon to hear us next week on the much more candid, Astonishing Junk Drawer, which most of the time we do live on video for our patrons.
1: Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. My name is John Rhodes. R-O-A-D-S. I'm Gabe Golden. R-O-A-D-S. Galaxy-wide in perpetuity. Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell at VW Sound and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also head of research and the social media manager. Special thanks to our announcer, John Bolin.
0: Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane at FounderMusic.com. And our sound design
1: and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Our logo was created by Tommy Beaver Design, and our animated graphics for social media and YouTube are done by Joshua Sloan at DeadStreetProductions.com.
0: Every episode going back to September of 2020 has a transcription available on its corresponding webpage at our website. Earlier transcriptions can be made available upon request to AstonishingContact
1: at gmail.com. Astonishing Legends would not be possible without you, our listeners. Visit our store at AstonishingLegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Instagram, Twitter, Discord, Facebook, and YouTube. You can also visit us at
0: Patreon.com AstonishingLegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content, including the Patreon-exclusive show Astonishing Junk Drawer, which is available every week the main show is not. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing
1: Legends Productions. Good night.